Support for the Greater Than Code podcast comes from O'Reilly Fluent and Velocity Conferences, coming to San Jose, California, June 11th through 14th. Join us for more insights, experts, and peers than ever before. You'll get hands-on training to help you improve performance, resilience, and user experience. Register with code GTC20 to save up to $519 on your pass. Learn more at O'Reilly.com slash better together. Hi, this is Rain Hendricks, and welcome to episode 79 of Greater Than Code. I'm here with my friend Janelle Klein. Hi, I'm Janelle, and I'm here with my new friend John Sowers. Hi, Janelle. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with my friend Jamie Hampton. We're all friends. I'm so I'm so glad. And I'm really excited to introduce our guest for today, who is Richard Schneeman. A mechanical engineer turned to the dark side of programming, Schneems focuses on performance and open source. He's in the top 50 contributors to Ruby on Rails, and he's the current maintainer of Sprockets. He's known for writing Ruby libraries such as Wicked and Derailed Benchmarks. He works for Heroku, and he runs a service to get people started with their open source journey at codetriage.com. And he's also currently attending Georgia Tech for their online master's program. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And I'm here with all of you listeners. We're all here together. So nice. All together. All friends. I want to be a friend. I'm not a friend yet. I want to be a friend. I think we can do that in the next hour or so, for sure. Okay. Right. You are now. I, 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 just made it, I just made it official. You're, you're okay. Yes. That needs to be our official time for how long it takes to become <laughs> part of our circle, right? About one episode? Yeah. And I think That's the first step of that is the question that we often start our show out with, as you may know, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Uh, so my superpower is uh, will be somewhat gross for maybe non-parents, but I am not grossed out about it. And that is my superpower, which is I am not grossed out by baby poop at all. Well, so I just had an infant. Um, I just had an infant. I just had a kid. I just had a child, my second child. And I've. I am the primary diaper changer and for some, it just like has never bothered me at all. And we just did like uh potty training with my two year old. Also parents um, will know that oversharing about kids like, you know, pee and poop is just like basically all we do. So again, sorry for those of you not in that land, but yeah, went through the um, potty training recently and that is my superpower that I'm most proud of. So how do you find that this carries over into your work? <laughs> I'm not afraid of code smells. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so actually, I will say my programming superpower is probably debugging. So at, at my job at Heroku, I'm on the, uh, the Ruby support kind of queue. Basically, if somebody opens up a support ticket and our support members can't handle it, then it gets escalated to me. And so I see a lot of really, really, really gnarly questions. And also, most of the work I do in, in open source is really just intense, like deep dive kind of debugging stuff. And so, yeah, just, I guess, I don't know, I it, like, I'm not afraid of getting in there, having being in a section of code where I have no idea what's going on, no idea what it's going to be doing in the future, and kind of just having to figure my way out. That sounds really valuable, being able to jump into so many different code bases and not freak out. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think it is that helps you be, you know, okay in that situation where there's a lot of uncertainty and, and maybe confusion? 
So a lot of reassuring myself that like it is okay that I don't know what's going on. Sometimes, yes, you need to have a larger picture of, of what everything is doing. But, you know, it's okay to be confused while you're just figuring things out. I do try to have a kind of a toolbox where generally if I'm debugging stuff, I want to start with some kind of a reproduction where I can, like maybe it's a URL to hit or maybe it's a command to run. And then I just do a lot of asking myself, okay, like logically, where does this, this behavior has to come from somewhere. It's not magic. Where can it come from? And normally, luckily, there's like backtraces or something, some sort of, it, it's all about like breadcrumbs. It's kind of like, it's like being Sherlock Holmes for code, I guess, kind of where you're like, aha, <laughs> by the killer's footsteps, we can infer that the culprit was sprockets. Yeah, then then I guess just from there, I've also been pretty familiar with Ruby, and Ruby has a lot of great introspection methods in and of itself. Like you can ask a method, hey, where did you come from? You turn on object traces, you can say, where, where was this object created? At any point in time, use the caller and figure out where you came from. So yeah, and, and I would also say I probably just kind of stumbled into it by accident, just by desiring to do things with different libraries and, and running either running into bugs themselves and ha having to figure out, okay, why is this happening? Or like doing feature work inside of a large library like Rails is not that dissimilar from debugging. Basically, you, you say, okay, well, I want to, this is how I want it to work. And before you can figure out how I want want it to work, you have to figure out how it currently works. And that kind of involves an iterative process of, okay, well, you know, generally I want to add this feature. It's kind of similar to this other feature. So it's probably somewhere in the code base similar to that. So you can start there and then just figure out how things are wired together. You know, I love that we started with like diapers <laughs> and, and then we went to like troubleshooting and dealing with all of, you know, these challenges and ugliness and lack of uncertainty of what you're going to experience and then putting on your Sherlock Holmes hat and looking for the breadcrumbs and figuring it out, you know, and the, and the fun and, and the magic just of that problem solving experience. And I think I found for myself that, I gravitate toward hard problems. Like, like it's like a, a game to play, right? And you've got, you've got this bug and you can observe certain characteristics about it, like little breadcrumbs and clues. And then, you know, it's almost like a, a detective show or something where you've got the whiteboard with all the clues of the things you figured out so far. And then you can band together as a team to, you know, slay the beast. And I, I found that when you can get in that mindset as a team of like, we're in this together, you know, figuring out how to conquer this thing, you create like a, a really interesting culture of like unity on the team around, you know, conquering the, the outside beast. I'm sort of thinking about and wondering like the, the culture that you see around you as kind of a consequence of this type of attitude. Like I, I kind of have sort of two hats like i i have my professional like day job hat um at heroku with and i work with people there and then i also almost kind of feel like i also have a an open source hat because of the work that i do there so at at work one of the teams that i do probably the majority of my interactions with is, is our support team where they'll come and they'll say you know okay why is this happening so my, my first job out of college was actually working phone support 
uh, for a company called National Instruments. And that was intense. I have lots of stories. <laughs> I have lots of stories about that, actually. Like just people calling and like expecting me to be in India. They're like, no, no, no. Where are you really? And I'm like, I'm in Austin, Texas. Like I graduated from Georgia Tech. And they're like, okay, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Where are you really? And I'm like, I gave you the actual answer. You cannot be like a jerk about this. But yeah, just uh, uh, a lot of people just kind of expect the process to be instantaneous. I have this problem. You clearly know the answer versus where I'm working now um, at Heroku. Everybody kind of understands, yes, it is a process. And, uh, and one of the things that we try to do with our customers, a lot of it is is also I would say most of the tickets that I get are not even problems with Heroku at all. But actually, the worst is um, when I've dug in and I'm like, OK, this isn't an issue with Heroku, but it is a bug in Sprockets. Unfortunately, I'm also the Sprockets maintainer. So, so it's still my fault. But uh, yeah, just generally when people internally message me and, and ask a question, it's never like solve this for me, fix this for me. It's always I want to know more. I want to understand the system better and understand how the pieces are fitting together. And that's also a large part of what we do kind of with our customers is helping them understand that debugging is kind of an iterative process. And yes, even some people do open up tickets and they just say, fix it, you know, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. And trying to kind of roll back that mindset and get them on the same page where, you know, they are putting in as much work as we are in trying to get their own mindset in terms of like what is happening and how can we debug this and what are the breadcrumbs and what information can I feed to this supporter and we can both figure this out. So I find that's really productive. Very cool. It sounds like there's, at least for some of the calls, uh, an education component. Like you need to get everyone on the same page with how the process is going to go before Mm -hmm. you dive into the process so that it's going to work. Absolutely. One of the things at National Instruments, they would always say like under promise and then like over deliver. But yeah, generally, like I'm kind of lucky in that whenever a problem does get to me, it has been triaged by, you know, some of our supporters and it typically is a very unique problem. My favorite definition of failure is that it's a difference between what you wanted and what you got and specifically one that you don't like. And one thing that implies for me is that there's two ways to fix it. One is to change what you get and the other is to change what you want. I like that. That actually reminds me of kind of another quote. I took a woodworking class and my instructor said, um, wisdom is what you get when you don't get what you want. And then he proceeded to say, I'm incredibly wise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It makes me think about, you know, sometimes setting the right expectation is, is the best way to avoid failure. Oh, absolutely. I would say actually 90% of the time, the customers end up figuring out their own issue. Like they, they know so much more about their app than I do and how they want it to work. And they've got a team of people versus it's just me. Yes. Like I do know the intricacies of sprockets and some Braille's and Puma and, you know, all these other things, but I can kind of tell a, sort of an inflection point when they go from kind of being passive on a ticket to say being, being a little bit more active and like actively pursuing that. Mm-hmm. And even over time, I can see where if I've seen a customer come in a couple of times, they just start approaching problems in this new sort of a new sort of a way like uh instead of saying here's the bug fix it they say here's everything we know about the behavior and here's like the behavior that we want and I, and i think that that kind of vibes with that i find that happening as a programmer too that like if i'm having a problem fixing a bug and i go to like someone else at my company and say can we pair on this it's 
90% of the time, not someone else looking at my code and saying, here's the bug. But like in the process of me trying to explain to them what went wrong, I'm like, ah, okay, I got it. Thanks for helping. And they're like, great. I didn't say anything, but I'm glad I could help you. Mm -hmm. Even having somebody like throw out, well, hey, yes, you want this behavior, but why? Like, is it because of actually there's some other, you know, higher order thing that you really, really want? Like, yes, you're trying to solve this performance bug, but, you know, maybe maybe we can like change some server configurations or, you know, oh, you're, you're experiencing like some of it is also, I would say, kind of putting a bandaid on the immediate wound so that you're not like bleeding right now. Relatively recently, I deployed a thing on the build pack. Uh, and so for people who don't know, whenever you do on Heroku, whenever you do get push Heroku master, it does like bundle install, rake assets, precompile, all that stuff flies by your screen. That's me furiously typing as fast as I can. So while I'm doing this interview, it's, you're just not going to be able to deploy. So yes, of course, that's all automated. And, and I deployed a change that kind of assumed some things for Rails 5.2 apps that wasn't 100% of the case. And while I was working on a fix, in, in addition to debugging it and figuring out the fix and figuring out what we should do, I also had to spend a lot of time educating customers and saying, okay, well, here is a way to use an older version of the build pack temporarily. And so not understanding that their want, their desire is not that the bug is fixed. Their desire is to be able to deploy. And so, yes, I want to fix the bug, but I also want them to be happy and want them to be able to do that, have that immediate uh, need met. Do you learn anything else from that about how build pack changes are released? Learn anything like in terms of like lessons learned? Yeah. So this is one of those cases where, I don't know, you like read the postmortem and you're like, was, why wasn't there a playbook? And it's like, okay, there was a playbook. It's like, why didn't you do this? I've been working at this job for like six years. And this was a case where I did something I knew I wasn't supposed to do. We generally are very conservative with our, whenever we deploy build pack, for instance, we don't deploy on Fridays. I try not to deploy in the afternoon just so I can have, whenever I Typically, if I'm going to, if I haven't deployed for a while and I deploy, I want to do it early in the morning. So I have all of the day that I can be fresh. I can be sharp. Um, I can engage our whole support team. And then after I deploy, I like, I, you know, not only do I monitor support tickets, I monitor build failures and metrics and Twitter and all of these other things. One of the things that I'm supposed to do is merge and let it sit on our master branch for a little bit. So because people can specify an arbitrary build pack, URL. Some people have specified the master branch of the build pack. Not a very large portion, but it's enough that it's kind of a, a bit of a smoke test. Basically, we, like we just have so many people using that. Like if you can do it on a Rails app, people will, and they just do these things that you would never expect. Um, and by letting it sit on the master branch, it's kind of like almost like a slow rollout process. And so, yeah, so uh, you've sort of like got a self-selected canary group. Exactly. Exactly. So typically we're supposed to release there. It's almost kind of like a, 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 a blue green, I guess, deploy sort of a, sort of a thing. And then when issues roll in, it's usually at a slower pace. Uh, usually, Hey, if, if you need to fix it, they can just start using the deployed version instead of that version. Like it's, it's, um, it's a lot more low key in this case. Yeah. I was like, Oh, I should probably do that. And then I just didn't. Would you mind defining blue-green for folks that aren't in operations that might be listening? Oh, that's a – I should probably, like, look that up so I get it right. Uh, this is a insight into what it looks like to be a developer, which is mostly Googling things. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Um, so blue-green is a deployment technique that reduces downtime and risk by running two identical production environments called blue and green. Yeah, basically, you're, you're going to be serving part of your traffic from one of them and then part of your traffic from another one. And, and you can stage your, your newer changes and break off a segment of your requests. In this case, it would be deploys to that other server and do things like monitor error rates and say, oh, well, our error rates are about the same. Or, oh, they're, they're 20% on our normal server. And with the new server, they're now 50%. Oh, no. I guess that's blue-green deploys. Yeah. I, I also mentioned Canary, which is similar, but is specifically sending, say, 10% of your traffic to the new version of the thing and then watching it to see if it's healthy or not. Mm-hmm. And um, I've also seen some some gems. I think GitHub has a gem called um, Science that is kind of sort, of sort of like this, where you can basically say, here are several different ways of accomplishing the same thing. And you can give it a rate and say, like, oh, I want 10% of people to be opted into this. Um, and I think it also has some other features where, like, you can also run both the original code and your new code and compare them to see if they're if it's the same thing. And by the way, I really hope Mandy leaves in the part where you were Googling this, because I think it's really important <laughs> for people to know that even folks like you who are experts in their field still need to Google things. Oh, yeah. When people ask me, like, what I do, I, I say I'm a professional Googler. By that, I do not mean I work at Google. <laughs> yeah, I, at, at one point, I seriously considered adding uh, forming Google search keywords into my <laughs> resume under my list of, of skills. I have a sticker on my laptop that says copying and pasting from Stack Overflow. And I was like, finally, a sticker that describes what I do for a living. <laughs> Amazing. You've seen the fake O'Reilly covers. Yeah, it's one of those. That sort of th- yeah. Oh, that's I love great. I, I love how how humor functions like that. <laughs> I think it's a great function of humor. Where did you get it? I need one of those. It's from um oh, it's a community called Dev. What's their Is it Dev2? Yeah, Dev2. Dev- okay, yeah. I knew something without googling it. I'm losing my touch. This is a whiteboard interview and uh you're 50/50 so far. Just kidding. Oh. Okay, so um, I mentioned I I am working at Heroku for the last six years. I will, so I haven't had the pleasure of interviewing in the last six years. I've told myself that I will do this uh, the next time I ever have to whiteboard is bring three whiteboard questions of my own, and before I do any whiteboarding, whoever asks me a whiteboard question, I will make them whiteboard my answers, my questions. By the way, I don't recommend you doing this if if you want a job. What, what kind of questions are they going to be? Are they going to be about programming or no? Because I feel like if they're not, that's almost better. Yeah, like generally, I, I I have my own set of like cultural questions and just like you know how does the company operate that kind of a that kind of a just um you know like yeah how do promotions work how does firing like you know would you say the company is effective at firing people um is one of the questions i i ask and i think is a good indicator of a like healthy hierarchy being able to communicate like performance plans and that kind of stuff anyway but in terms of like basically if i can just tell that i'm not going to work there <laughs> I'll, I'll, like i'll just i'll just roll down with like okay so you're given a doubly linked list and you want to fizz buzz the last element how can we <laughs> convert that into roman numerals you can deploy how many piano tuners are there in chicago <laughs> exactly exactly and the answer I- is of course as many as the market will support <laughs> <laughs> i think it's kind of an empathy thing where just most 
people who are doing interviews, A, forget that the person they're interviewing is also interviewing them, and B, just kind of sort of sit in this, uh, I'm going to get the term wrong, crystal palace, crystal, like they're up on their like, you know, high horse or whatever, kind of looking down on the poor plebeian interviewee, just kind of assuming that like, you know. Ivory Tower? Yeah, Ivory Tower. There we go. Thank you. Yeah, so so these people are sitting up in their Ivory Tower. Like, I have definitely been in interviews where it was pretty clear that the purpose of the interview was not for me to get hired or not, but it was to make the interviewer feel good about how much they knew and I didn't. And that's definitely a thing that happens. That's so frustrating. Yeah. I think even uh, in general, even when it is about whether you get hired or not, even that can be frustrating when it's just like whether or not we want to hire you, whether we want to bestow the great honor of hiring you upon you. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it's such an interesting like role reversal from all of the rest of like the recruiting pipeline because it's like, you know, every day I changed my GitHub, like I have a public email and like I change it to like plus no recruiters that clearly didn't do anything. But yeah, it's just like I get messages and like I, I organize a conference called Keep Ruby Weird and, you know, we get uh, recruiters who want to come and do stuff there. And I work, um, I'm involved in my local community with uh, Austin on Rails and and recruiters want to come there and message our list and like, please, please. Oh, we you know, we want you, we want you, want you, want you, want you. And as soon as you like say like show the least a bit of interest it's like the cat and mouse is like reversed and suddenly like they're like standoffish and suddenly like you know you must jump through these 27 hoops and perform great feats to like please the corporate uh overlords yeah the incentives are really perverse there because they want the top of the funnel to be as big as possible and the bottom of the funnel to be as small as possible so they have the best chance of actually landing people with companies and not developing a reputation for not knowing how to filter. Mm -hmm. So they have these perverse incentives to bring in as many people as possible and then filter out as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. If anybody was like listening to me being like, Oh, whiteboarding the other company, I'm totally going to do that. Yeah. So uh, that was again, probably just a joke. I might actually try it at one point in time, but um, (laughs) an, an actual piece of advice. And I also haven't gotten to the, try this out, but you know, maybe give it a shot and let me know if it works. If you can go with some code that you've already written, you know, maybe it's open source, maybe it's not. And basically say, like, propose, like, yes, I understand that you want to identify can I code or not. How about as an alternative proposal, let's look through some code I've written together and maybe you can ask me questions about it or maybe I can walk you through it as a way to basically say, yes, we're still going to talk technical, we're still going to talk shop, but I'm not going to deploy BizBuzz as a service on like kubernetes to production scale grade 27 million people right (laughs) like it's not what i do and that's maybe a little bit closer i don't know if any hiring people would actually accept that and be like yes i would do that but at least it's like on the table right yeah it's interesting so there are sort of like in most discussions there's sort of at least two levels of language here there's the object language which is the questions they ask you, the whiteboard assignment they give you. Then there's the meta language, which is talking about the questions they ask you and talking about the structure of the interview. And I think it's important for interviewees to be aware of what's going on at the meta level, but to also know that trying to sort of explicitly change that can be seen as gaming the interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like too much Kremlinology. <laughs> you know, how much insight you give 
the interviewer into your understanding of like the meta level of the interview is something that you should be aware of. It can be very effective. Absolutely. How did we start talking about interviews? I don't know. Way? <laughs> I literally, I made a joke that we were giving you a whiteboard interview and then oh, this is what oh, we're talking we about now. <laughs> yeah, that's great. No, this is, this is, I think this, I think this means we're friends because this happens, this, <laughs> like, this happens with my really good friends where it's like two in the morning and we're like at some coffee shop or something and it's like, I really have no idea how we got talking about this thing, but we've been talking about it for like four hours and there's these five other threads that like I have to be talking about. So one of the weird things about being a consultant is that I interview a lot. And so relative to people that have mostly been full-time employees, I think I've developed a skill set there just by repetition. But it's, it's kind of, it's weird to think of interviewing as a skill, especially if you're just focused on getting the job and then, you know, working there for two years and then getting another job. I don't, I don't have a CS degree. Um, I'm working towards a master's in CS, my bachelor's yeah. in mechanical engineering. Me neither. And um, I'd actually like to talk to you about that. Okay. So uh, I, I guess I was just going to say, does it ever get easier? You, you you said you're getting better at it, but do, how do you feel about it? I feel like I'm good at it. I feel like I interview well and that when I interview, people often want to hire me as a result of the interview. I don't think that I enjoy it more. <laughs> um, I think that we've picked a field where interviewing is harder than in, in most others because a, the work that we do is largely creative. B, outcomes are poorly defined in general for our field. Uh, C, we don't have objective rubrics that we can use to sort of quantify a lot of behaviors that we want to select for. I've seen all sorts of interviewing processes, and most of them are still based on gut feel. Mm -hmm. Most of them are still designed to elicit some feeling about the interviewee. Mm -hmm. Rather than to sort of grade them in an objective way that they can compare against other people. And so that means that interviewing is basically like, how quickly can I build rapport with someone else is the main indicator of whether I do well in the interview. Mm, interesting. I see what you're saying about like creating a gut feeling versus like objectively deciding something, but isn't that how anything is ever? You know what I mean? I, I think at some level, yes, absolutely. Um, I think that there's a, a, a continuum here, right? There's shades. And there are fields where it, the interview can be much more objective. So I almost feel like this is part of the problem where a lot of the techniques are very objective. Like a lot of the, like we will whiteboard you. You got the answer right or you got it wrong. But then the whether we hire you or not is still like the takeaway from that is not whether you did it right or not. It's like it is this gut feel. And so even if you do everything right, even if you get all the answers right, like the end result can still be no. And it, it kind of just feels like, at least for me, it's just this weird mixture of emotions where like I, I feel rejected. And I don't know, I, that, that there might be some interplay there just between that, that, um, disconnect between like the questions they are asking me and the thing that they're actually trying to get from me. Just what you were bringing up earlier about the the skill and the art of troubleshooting. I think the other disconnect of feeling judged in a way that isn't relevant to what you actually need to be good at to do your job. You know, all of these skills in terms of the art of troubleshooting and all this great stuff about how you go about asking the right questions and building a culture of collaboration around you that's positive, even in the face of these challenges of just uncertainty that freak a lot of people out. And you can come in there and say, I'm not as scared of dirty diapers. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I, I, I mean, I think that's beautiful in a lot of ways that you can bring that to the table. But then when you have people that are judging you 
on something that seems so irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, there's just part of that that sucks. And then you sort of like look at, so is your goal in this whole thing just to like, you know, stand up in your crystal tower and, you know, stomp on the plebeians, <laughs> as you put it? <laughs> I think one of the challenges is that there are very few objective ways to evaluate things in our field. Like, what is clean code? What is readability? These are all subjective measurements. Yeah. The first, the literally very first programming interview I ever had, the CEO of the company told me, like, point blank to my face, like, you cannot code. Like, you are not a coder. Like, you do not know how to code. So that wow. that wasn't fun. I actually uh, kind of called him out on, on Twitter uh, so it just, it was one of those like, Hey, quote this and like, give your, give your worst experience or whatever. And like, I tagged him on Twitter and he's, he was like, really? Like I did that. I don't remember that. Like, I'm sorry. It's like, sorry. it hasn't scarred me for like the last 10 years or anything. Like, is that one of fun. those, like for you was, it was the most important day of your life. And for me, it was Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it was also a weird role reversal because like I had previously talked to like they were I knew him and I knew them and I knew the people in the company and they were like, like, really like Rails was not a big thing. Ruby was not a big thing. And they were like, yeah, please come in. Like we could like I gave a presentation at Austin on Rails and they like loved it. And it was like I didn't even know whiteboarding was a thing until I like walked in that door and they were like, here you go. It was like. Oh, that's the it's worst like, surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, what's worse than whiteboarding? Surprise, whiteboarding. I think the most damning critique I can give of technical interviewing is that technical interviewing is a separate and distinct skill set from being good at the job they would give you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd agree. I'd agree with that. I think uh, you was, uh, my interview, though. I mean, I'm, like, I spent a lot of time focusing specifically on troubleshooting skills and do people, what questions are people asking? And if I throw obstacles at them, can, can I think about how I would go about creating observability and figuring out what the clues are and asking the right questions? And the solutions always change, right? But the questions that you ask stay pretty much the same. And so if we get really good at the art of asking the right questions, we can bring that discipline to our entire team. So you can bring all those brains together, you know, back to conquering and slaying that same beast, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, the beautiful kind of thing to be able to bring to the tables is a gift like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and I will say, like, if anybody's doing interviews, I've also done, like, pairing as an interview. Like, hey, let's look at some open source, like, thing. Um, there's a little bit of legality in terms of like actually working on a product and not getting paid for it. Um, you got to, so you got to watch out for that. But like, that was, that was great when I did that. Uh, Heroku gives like little starter projects, which, uh, I kind of had, I'm kind of mixed about it just because people spend a lot of time on this thing. And it's not like we only give you a starter project. There might be two people at, for the same position. And like, anyway. Um, yeah. You're, so. you're selecting for people who have 10 hours unpaid to give to some company. Yeah. I mean, I, it's better than a whiteboard, but it's still, I've got some issues with it. Um, yeah, I, like, I, I think to your point previously, like just the right questions and like the right flow, like I have been to also interviews where it was just like, let's sit down and oh, the most technical thing we did and, and I enjoyed was like, let's look at, they had previously looked at some code I had written and, or were like send in some samples. And then they actually had like the interviewer had done some homework. Like most interviewers I find only find out my name like 
30 seconds. They like look down at the sheet of paper and they're like, you know, like they have the resume in hand. They don't know who you are. They don't even know really maybe even what position you're like hiring for, what your specialties are, your skill set. Like uh, we've been talking about a lot about like what not to do. I think that's uh, those are some kind of bright spots for me of um, of some things that I enjoyed. Hello, checks notes, Richard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much writing on hand. <laughs> so earlier you talked about wearing two hats. You had this day job hat and this OSS hat and kind mm-hmm. of switching between these different roles. Would you mind kind of contrasting what these different roles are, the way you see them and what are the differences between them? Whenever I'm working in open source, one of the biggest challenges is communication mostly because the people who you're communicating with kind don't owe you anything. There are typically a lot of volunteers. Instead of having them on Slack, you're communicating through this async kind of GitHub pull requests and, and those kind of things. And because of that, it builds some muscles in terms of communicating clearly and succinctly and being able to work with people in this kind of asynchronous fashion. It's basically doing a lot of things that you know you probably should do. It's like, oh, writing good commit messages. It's like, oh, writing actually what's going on in this thing, like breaking up your features into maintainable chunks uh, and submitting them as individual pull requests. And when you're making a pull request, like not just having a title and then like leaving the body blank, but like actually writing like, okay, here's the mental state I was in when I was writing this, writing tests, writing documentation. And like these are just all things that if you don't do them in the open source world, then you find yourself paying for it in other ways. Like you have to keep on repeating yourself. You have to uh, like, oh, that feature gets merged and then you need to do work on it. And oh my gosh, suddenly like you don't have the context yourself versus I find in a private environment inside of a company, a lot of people are, you know, oh, we want to move as fast as possible. I mean, and Heroku, I say, is one of the better orgs that I've worked at in terms of like best practices. But still there's this like, just like you're working on a bug and you've got, like 25 commits and it's like debug 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 again works works actually works come on seriously what you know and and like if it's open source you take the time to like squash that into one commit and then like maybe tell a story but like with in a private organization a lot of people just push all those and i mean in terms of like it's an open question of like whether it's actually worth it to have that history but i think being able to quote unquote what i would say do it the right way is is just a really valuable skill and then trying to bring that back to a private organization so i i guess those are just two different ways of working uh, also i mentioned like the difference between in a company you can go to somebody and say this is your job this is your responsibility i need you to do this you know or if they don't then you maybe, okay, you can go and talk to their manager and like make sure it's on the product roadmap and like everybody's kind of on the same team versus open source. It's, it's very much if you have to have somebody else do it, there's a currency of respect and gratitude and selling, right? You can't just say you have to do this. You have to say why. And this is what we're currently seeing. This is what I imagine the world to look like tomorrow. And this is why the world is a better, more beautiful place if this exists. And that kind of communication and storytelling, I think it, is really valuable and being able to bring that back into a corporate environment is really beneficial. That being said, it's not always the easiest thing to get time to work on open source inside of a company. And that's a thing that even already, I think Heroku is probably better than a lot of the places I've like, I've talked to or or just anecdotally heard of, of other people. And they do give me time to work on open source during the day. You know, sometimes it's because, oh, somebody brought up a bug in sprockets and I'm going to fix that. It's like, is it going to directly help all of our customers? 
Uh, I mean, yeah, in their development environment, but it's helping everyone. It's like not just our customers. Um, and at one point in time, I did kind of get this stigma of like, oh, Richard worked on open source just for, for fun, basically, for like all day, every day. And like, what does he actually do around here? And I'm actually still kind of trying to figure that one out because I think the work that I do is very valuable. And um, I, I think it's also just a, a matter of like internal evangelism and letting people know if I'm working on something during company time, why am I working on that thing? And does it actually make sense for me to be committing this patch or adding this feature? You know, now instead of saying, well, I'll do it in my you know, free time, which as a parent and going to school, I don't have. I think you've highlighted an interesting issue about the difference in structure between a company and an open source project where the company has this external sort of structure around it that's holding the team together and say, you know, everyone's working together. And so you sort of get into that, well, everyone has to work here, but it's sort of casual. And so we can leave our dirty laundry around and no one's going to complain. Whereas in an open source project, the project itself has to hold itself together and that has to be built on that risk, the currency of respect that you talked about and, and the very deliberate exchange of ideas and, and selling what the next step is going to be. So that sort of makes the communication structure a lot more explicit and that's what holds it together versus this sort of external sort of shell around the outside saying, well, you all work here, so you have to make it work. Mm-hmm. I think this is another great example of the tension between structure and agency you know open source projects tend to have a lot of agency each person has a lot of say in what they work on when they work on it how they can contribute corporations and companies tend to be much more structured and 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 less focused on agency uh, i'm wondering if you see any other sort of cultural or social patterns that might differentiate between why open source communication patterns are the way they are versus in a company that's a really interesting question. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. I think in a lot of companies, there is there's sort of a, a tree hierarchy of um, decision-making. The product will move in this direction. You know, the CEO says, we will point the ship in this direction. And then the manager says, okay, that means we'll unfurl the sails in this direction. And then, you know, the engineer says, okay, I'm going to tie this knot. Um, I don't know exactly that kind of analogy sort of fell through, but versus in open source, a lot of the decision making is kind of made at, at the leaf nodes and the people implementing it are also the decision makers. And, and also it might be the first time a lot of people work on products that they themselves cannot consume. Like I know there's a ton of health startups in the rail space and it's like, okay, you know, we're going to have this HIPAA data and we're going to you know, provide this framework and this feature for, you know, this health company. And like, you can kind of understand how they use it, but like you are not the consumer versus when you were working on an open source project, um, not only are you the implementer, but you're also the user. And I do think a, it's kind of a, a different level of, oh, I don't even know, attention and care and respect comes from that. Um, both good and bad. I, I was listening to um, the other episode you all did where you're talking about um, how much you like people fall in love with their own code. And uh, that is a thing that I think happens with orders of magnitude higher in open source, especially like if you're a first time contributor, if you've just written your first patch. Uh, like I, I remember I wrote a, a feature that shows the Rails route information in the in the browser. Instead of having to run rake routes, you can just like see it into I think you go to um, localhost 3000 slash Rails slash info slash routes. And then I wrote another feature that 
let you type in a route and it would show you what, like you could type in slash users slash 23 and it would say, oh, hey, these five routes match that. The first one is what's going to actually get called. Um, and I did it in jQuery and like DHH suddenly got interested in the PR and was like, no, rewrite all of this. I don't want jQuery in this, like do it all in pure JavaScript. And I was like very immature in my, in my JavaScript. And like, I was very taken aback by that and like pissed off and like, no, I don't, you know, I don't want to do that. But several years later, like, I think that was the right thing to do. It made the feature stronger, but like, I still had that kind of emotional connection to the original way that I had written the code and it was all out in public and for everyone to see. Um, and so I think also that's a barrier of entry to open source that a lot of people don't necessarily talk about. Just like that, that kind of vulnerability and just putting yourself out there is part of the, of the process of being able to, to work with this. I'm really interested in what you were getting at about how in open source you are also the user. Because I've been thinking a lot about the idea of having empathy for your users and like how their needs might be different than your needs. And so I guess I'm considering like perhaps working in open source in some ways because of this requires less empathy. And I'm wondering, like, I feel like that can be like, on the one hand, that makes work easier because empathy is really hard and it's like a real skill that you have to practice and learn and like be doing actively. But on the other hand, I wonder if the fact that we have to focus less on empathy because of that reason accidentally has a side effect of less empathy in general. And this is just conjecture. So I'm wondering like what your thoughts are on the role of empathy. So I I think it's tough. And I think different language communities deal with empathy differently. I've seen in, at least in Rails, like there's a bunch of things that the maintainers um, we try to do to be welcoming and directly have empathy for people who are opening up bugs and doing first issues and that kind of thing. Um, actively going out of our, uh, there's actually a bot that basically says like, Hey, this is your first time. You know, here's kind of what you can expect. Like, thank you and welcome. And like, uh, one of the things that I actually struggle with the most as a maintainer is closing issues. Like, thank you very much for submitting this. I'm not going to accept this. And generally I try to, spin it in terms of a positive, like, yes, we're not accepting this feature. Generally, I say why, and then kind of make a point of like, but you did something and you contributed and you got out of bed. Like, even though you're, you're closing this, it doesn't mean that it's a null, like you didn't get anything. Like you got the experience of this contribution process and it's going to make the next bug that you want to fix or the next feature you want to submit that much simpler and easier. And like, hopefully then by doing that, people come back and they're not just, you know, totally scared away. And so, like, from a maintainer perspective, trying to do that. And then I think from the flip perspective, the people who are opening issues, they don't always come with empathy. What I was saying previously with that fix it, fix it, fix it mentality, they're like, oh, here's a bug. And they're just angry. And, like, their stuff is down. And they are angry. And they are can be hateful and hurtful. And, like, you wrote awful software. And this is, you know, blah. I think there's a lot of entitlement. Oh, yeah. Like, they are emotionally connected to this piece of software that you wrote and they expected it to do something and it did not, you know, going back to the whole like failure and not, and not like, uh, and, and expectations. And part of the maintainer's job is, Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard to just like not close that issue. Like you're being a jerk, <laughs> like issue locked banned. But like in reality, the issue they brought up was probably legitimate. 
uh, it, like, it kind of sucks, but you, you have to work with this human component. Like, as programmers, we're so used to working with computers, and it's like, but no, you're working with this human, and you have to do all of that support role of, like, okay, well, yes, you're experiencing all this pain. You need to give me breadcrumbs instead of hate. You need to give me stack traces instead of disparagement. Like, I feel like there could be a campaign slogan in there somewhere. And, you know, eventually over time, like, as a maintainer, you can diffuse the situation, hopefully. Or there are just some toxic cases where they just come in raging, and it is the best to just close it and ask them, like, hey, if you need help with this, please ask nicer and open up another issue. But in the Rails and the Ruby community, I, I think that's a lot less. And I have a pit, like, this is a perfect tie-in to the free open source service I run called Code Triage. And basically, like, if you're interested in getting started contributing to open source, say you're interested in contributing to Rails, you go to codetriage.com slash Rails slash Rails, and it sends you a single open issue every day. And then it has some logic to, like, automatically back off so you don't get burned out and that kind of a thing. And all of that empathy building and all of that trying to make a connection doesn't necessarily have to be done with somebody who is intimately familiar with the active record internals. You know, if somebody opens up an issue and they are very dispassionate uh, about this and uh, dispassionate, passionate, is that like inflammable, inflammable? I don't, I can't remember. No, there are uh, opposites. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, if somebody is like incredibly, you know, passionate in a negative way about this thing, you know, calming them down and asking for like, okay, can you give me a version number? If they provide a, an application that can reproduce the issue, like actually trying to reproduce the issue. Uh, and just kind of the idea is taking work off of the maintainers so that when a maintainer actually gets to that issue, they have clear, actionable things that they can do. And it just takes them a little bit less time. So it, it's almost kind of like distributed empathy uh, as a service, which I've, I've never actually thought of it that way previously, but I really like. You, so, you, you were talking about being compassionate and showing empathy in PR reviews and things like that. And I have a rant about egoless coding that I could go into, but I don't want to be a bore. The short version is basically that the idea uh, that you are not your code, that you should check you know leave your ego at home uh and be able to do code review and things like that and take feedback completely dispassionately and objectively is not only wrong it's harmful mm. because work is one of the biggest factors in how we develop our identity because i like to name drop people everett hughes wrote a 1951 essay called work and self and he said that and it uses gendered language but i'm so i'll just reproduce it a man's work is one of the things by which he is judged and certainly one of the more significant things by which he judges himself. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you can just leave your ego at the door and go to a code review is psychologically wrong <laughs> and expecting people to do that is hurtful. And what we oh, should yeah. be doing instead is acknowledging and honoring that people's work is a part of their life and their identity and being compassionate. So that's the rant. Okay. Yeah. I, I I completely agree with that. If you could assume that everyone's going to be dispassionate, that means you don't need any empathy when you're talking about it. You can just all discuss it objectively. And yep. <laughs> I just see this as a way to offload the caring about feelings onto someone else. Well, and, yeah. and not, and not only that, but like so much of coding is subjective. And by basically saying that, like we are only a hundred percent analytical brain right now. Like if I make a statement, it means I am like speaking truth instead of like opinion. Yeah, that's um, huge. It's it's a way to 
couch your subjective uh, opinions as tr- objective truth. Absolutely. So, oh, so I will say one thing, one trend I've noticed in larger Rails projects or, or Ruby projects in general is um, using some sort of a um, a linter to enforce style, like Rubocop. And one of the major benefits of that is, and I, and I think you you all touched on this with the RailsConf show of like, hey, if you're gonna if you're gonna leave a like needs change, that's like an X mark. That's like a you know like negative. And the fewer of those that you have to leave, f- like feedback cycles are a real thing. And as soon as if I open that pull request, if I see a like eh, test failed, oh, okay, well tests are like a technical thing. Like why did they fail? Oh, because I didn't you know stylistically my my thing diverged from the style guide. Okay, well I can fix that. And so when you are reviewing my pull request. Prior to that going into Rails, I've seen these cases where there would be 25 comments and it would just be like, remove this white space, remove this white space, remove this white space, remove this white, like to people just had keyboard shortcuts and would just give like the emoji scissors. Um, <laughs> like, like, yeah, I mean, and, and it's just, it's frustrating. Like also as a maintainer, if somebody, sometimes people don't come back to pull requests and it's really frustrating if it's almost perfect, but, uh, I just needed like an extra space between that character and the curly bracket. And I ask for that change. And then I just don't hear from you for the next six months. And then like, okay, well, do I pull it in? I really want you to get your feature in. So you feel proud of it and you feel ownership. And then you want to keep contributing and keep working. But it's like, there is a certain point in time when it's just like, okay, maybe it's just easier for me to just do this myself. And like, it's, it's, it's so it's frustrating. And I think, as much as we possibly can offloading some of that logic. And if it is truly judgmentless, then like how much of it can we offload to a linter, to a compiler, to a, to an actual blameless, like emotionless uh, system. I totally agree with that. And I think that it's also like, I don't want to waste time arguing about style rules. Mm-hmm. And I used to, at my old job, we didn't do like style enters and we spent all, a lot of time doing that. Like he'd be like, take, someone would do code review for me and be like, take out this white space. And I'm like, no, I want this white space here because it makes it easier for me to read it. And then we would fight about whether it should be there or not. And like having a linter to be like, nope, it's, you're taking it out. I have my RuboCop set up to like automatically correct my stuff. So I'm oh, like, great. it's gone and I don't even have to think about it and I'm not going to argue about it. And in the end, it doesn't really matter that much whether the white space is there or not. I have so many things in my mind, and now that's not one of them. <laughs> I have a lot of uh, criticisms of the Go language, but one of the best things they did was Go format, which is never worry about code style ever again. Let a computer do it. Is it Go format or is it Go fumped? Sure. <laughs> Let- I refuse. I refuse to say that. <laughs> I'm like, what it's can like, this stand like, for? Like, I want it to stand for, like, go fuck yourself. But, like, go... <laughs> I have to figure out what the MT stands for now. Go fump yourself. <laughs> go format uh, yourself. <laughs> Sorry. It's it's really fun sitting here and listening to how this conversation starts and, like, meanders off into all these various directions, though. We, we started with this contrast between the open source hat and the company hat in this Mm -hmm. contrasting culture that sounds almost like it's upside down. You mentioned like decisions at the the least versus decisions at the top of the tree and -hmm. how this completely different culture emerges. And in some ways, some things function better. And in other ways, 
you know, you've got a, a different set of dysfunctions that emerge. And so I'm wondering what you see as the major factors that cause that difference. Like, I mean, you mentioned like, how, how do we take some of these attention, care, respect, gratitude, you know, these good things in the open source world and bring those things into our companies. And why is that even hard? Why are these Mm -hmm. things hard to have inside of a company? Like what's keeping that from happening? So I think that's an amazing thread. So I think they're interlinked. I think that the whole like idea of a like top down, uh, Berkey is the mental idea is that people are doing things because they're told to do them versus like, that's not really what motivates people. I can actually think of a, of a case recently, um, that I can't tell you too much details about, but like internally in work, like there's a little squabble over like, okay, how should we solve this problem? And one solution by team A would basically mean that team B has more work. And one solution by team B meant team A has more work. And naturally, like each team is advocating and thinks for the, for the solution that ends up shipping will have less work on the other team. The attitude and the types of conversations and almost some of it also comes back to that, like pretending to be um, emotionally disconnected. Like everybody knows intellectually why team A is arguing for that and why team B is arguing for that. But like nobody is really going to come out and say it like nobody is going to come out and say like, yes, I want this because it's less work for me because like that's a kind of a, I don't know, for some reason, like that's just not like a a, a thing. And I, I do think empathy and having that awareness basically of, okay, people are emotional creatures. This is not just happening in a vacuum. There are real world consequences to this. And yes, even though technically this team should do this and I expect them to do this and I want them to do this then, you know, there's still an, an amount of like, I want to respect what they're doing and I want them to respect what I'm doing. I don't want to just kind of take them for granted. I think that's that is really missing in a lot of like organizations, no matter how hard we try is this kind of respect. So Heroku is actually owned by Salesforce. And a thing that Salesforce is doing is there's this feedback app where you're kind of just prompted to give essentially unsolicited feedback to other just team members. And it's really interesting because you run into these scenarios where people come to me and they say, oh, you know, Richard, you, you are one of the maintainers of Puma. I have a question about Puma. Can I grab your ear for 15 minutes or something like that? Where previously, like this is something that would have happened anyway. And I would say yes. And like, let's jump on a hangout and like talk. But if I'm in the middle of a ton of things uh, and everything's on fire, like effectively that's extra work on me in my day, but professionally, I don't get anything out of it. Like emotionally I do, I build a bond with this other person, but, um, having just some sort of like an incentive structure that like in some kind of ways mimics that like this person helped me and this is how, and I liked it. So we haven't done it for long enough for me to tell like if it's good or bad, like it, part of it makes me think of like a black mirror episode. I don't know if anybody watches Black Mirror, but there's this one where everybody's like rating everyone else. And if you don't give them five stars, it's like part of it. Like, I think it could easily devolve into that, but like, at least how it's written and how it's implemented now is not the case. So like in the ideal world, in the scenario with team A and team B, if professionally they are judged by what kind of feedback, their positive feedback they're getting, I like, I would love to live in a world where team A is like, no, we have to do the one that where more work gets put on team A because, you know, it'll look really good for me and I'll be helping these other people out. And then team B is fighting. No, like team B should, should take it on. Um, as opposed to a culture where everybody is just passing the buck and like nobody wants to commit to anything 
unless it's just like a, a project that's obviously going to win and, and be great. So I don't know if anybody has any, and like, yeah, that's like designing inst- incentive structures is, is risky. <laughs> certainly is. Well, it changes that motivation factor. You know, I mean, we mentioned like these different kind of cultures and the glue that holds them together. And like you throw in an incentive structure on top of your open source project and you can, you know, watch the whole thing come crumbling down, right? A lot of times, depending on what you do. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of just made this connection, but GitHub implemented the thing where you can do like thumbs up and like cheers and stuff on on an issue and like a pull request. It's just like a little emoji, basically. Like that is kind of a, a very, it's a much lighter touch form of this like, hey, thank you. Like it's a please give emotional feedback in terms of like, did you like this? Are you excited about this? Um, and then it also, I think it subscribes you to that issue as well. Um, I think, I'm not totally sure. Anyway, I just kind of made that connection. Our company started using a product called Reflective to do the same sort of thing where you can sort of publicly call out, you know, positive things that, that other team members have been doing. And I think it sort of goes to the the principle of Positive feedback in public, negative feedback in private, which is mm-hmm. a great way to handle things. So it's working for me. Do you like it so far or is it kind of, eh? Still trying to like work it into the process of making it a regular thing. Like we, we do shout outs for our, each other on our like weekly sprint retros so that there's always that, a lot of that positive feedback flowing, but making it sort of more permanent going into the app. Still trying to make that work. I think they have a yeah. Slack integration we got to get going. So it'll be a little easier, but. Oh, that um, would be amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I should that that would be amazing. If I implemented that feature, I'd get so much positive feedback. <laughs> <laughs> and that's also my issue too right now. Like all the time I'm like I tell people and I say thank you and I say it like in the our Slack room where their boss can see it and all this other stuff and I think mentally like, "Oh my gosh, I'm totally going to submit you for like a feedback app." And then I just like it's like you said, it's not worked into my process and I need to figure something out there. One thing I, I think to be careful of here is that whenever you take some relationship between two people and you stick a machine in the middle, it can become less personal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I read a lot of um, I read a lot of sci-fi recently, yeah, I, which I guess kind of goes back also to the Black Mirror, I, which I don't really watch a lot of. It, it It's too cringy for me. It's like very it's like too on the nose. But yeah, I, I would agree with that. So yeah. what I found is that, like, if you have a Slack bot that like asks uh, feedback questions that your manager would normally ask during a one-on-one that they will get worse feedback because a machine was stuck in, in the middle of the process than if they had just asked the questions. Mm. So if, you know, there are some Slack apps that are like, we will send your team questions on a regular basis that they can fill out in Slack. And mm-hmm. the quality of feedback generally goes down is what I Oh yeah. I wonder if that's always true though, because like this literally happened to me this morning. I was super frustrated about work. And if my, if like my boss had come to me and been like, Hey, are you super frustrated? I probably would have been like, no, it's fine. But because we have like a Slack, like robot that does the one on one, the robot was like, how was your work going? And I was like, Mm -hmm. bad, actually. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good point, Jamie. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we we yeah, we used to use a thing called like I'm doing this or look what I'm doing or I don't even remember the name of it, but it just would send you an email every day and it's like what did you do today and it would be like I didn't do anything. Yeah, exactly the same thing. Oh, I actually it reminds me. I used to I used to work for a company called Goala. Does anybody does any does that mean anything to anybody? Or you yeah, like I'm oh I know what that it. is. Yeah, uh, it's not payments, not Dwala, not juices. That's Oddwala. Um, <laughs> 
so GoWallow was a com- the major competitor to Foursquare and um, eventually got purchased by Facebook, destroyed by Facebook, whatever, however you want to frame that. I did not go to work for Facebook. I'll just leave it there. And we had um, Campfire, which w- before pre- before Slack, we had Campfire, and somebody built a Campfire bot that allowed people to give points. Every day, people would get a little mini bank account. Like, you would get 10 points a day or something like that. So every day, your bank account went up by 10. And then in the Campfire, you could say, somebody did something nice for you. You could say, like, 20 points to, like, R- every- it was all by initials. It- so it's like 20 points to RS, and it would deduct 20 points from yours and put them into into their bank account. And they didn't mean anything. But, like, some people really took it really seriously and, like, were, like, definitely vying for, like, points. And, like, would, would be somebody – people it would be like, oh, hey, can you do this? And they're like, I don't know. How many points is it worth to you? And, oh, like – um, well, and So this and, is like a zero-sum karma bot. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it was really frustrating because, like, sometimes, like, people would be trying to be nice to you, and they would be like, oh, 10 points, and then, like, you'd, like, scroll up and see that they just gave somebody else 10 points for, like, some funny, like, meme that or image that they shared, and you're like, oh, apparently my, like, eight hours of hard work on this thing is, like, not worth anything to you. That's an interesting I, unintended that, consequence. That that was kind of like what I've been thinking about this whole time is just with the incentive stuff. I've had so many bad experiences with, you know, even the most, you know, kind intended, you know, we're going to celebrate all the great things kind of incentive systems become, why won't anybody look at me and pay attention to me? It's this, it's this Facebook effect of, of like this epic loneliness that comes when, you know, you're trying to get other people to pay attention to you and to see you. And for some reason they won't. And it becomes its own kind of cultural wall building in a way of like, who are the charismatic people that everyone likes Mm -hmm. versus, you know, who are the weirdos that, you know, are a little offbeat and that, you know, don't get the gold stars necessarily of the, you know, of the things I've found that like taking all the meters down, taking all the measures down of, of that kind of stuff, but building a culture where we celebrate each other. We try and see each other. We try and be grateful for our, you know, skills and our contributions. And that becomes part of the culture, but not necessarily escalating visibility to a degree that you have this desire for the gold star thing. I think that Mm -hmm. can often create some destructive impacts on culture. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, and another kind of just like you have these weird side effects too, like because points were distributed per day like we had a new hire and suddenly they've got like zero points and like somebody else who is who comes into the company like looks into like oh here's the pecking order and it's like oh well the new guy or new girl like just it's like oh they're clearly unimportant and it's like no they you know that like they're very important we're all we're all important like you should yeah no i i I totally agree so this has been a really awesome conversation, and I think we're getting just about to the point of our show where we do our reflections, and everybody gets to take a chance to reflect on something that they thought was really important or something that really uh, changed the way they thought about something or something that a call to action going forward. And for me, the thing that's kind of on my mind after all of these kind of different topics that we talked about is... Back at the beginning, we were talking about interviewing. Rain said something about having a gut feeling versus being able to like pull out objective data about someone. 
And I made a joke about that, like, ain't that always just the way or whatever. But I think that it really is. And the more that we started talking about, like, open source and systems and everything, I that was kind of in the back of my mind through all of it. And I think that it really, the the gut feeling is really important in a lot of the things we do to the point where when we first mentioned it as interviewing, I kind of, it made me feel like, oh, well, we should have objective data. Like that's really important and we should be able to compare and like the gut feeling, it shouldn't be the most important thing. And now I'm almost uh, reflecting on that. Like we use our gut in so many things we do. Maybe it does make sense that that's the kind of thing that we're trying to get a sense for. And so I think I'm going to continue to reflect on that and maybe think about what's important. So um, I think it was right at the beginning, Richard, you were talking about, you know, you have support cases that come in and sometimes the people are in uh, unfriendly state when, when the, when the issues come to you and, you know, the work you described there is like the hardest work of empathy. When someone's coming at you in a negative state and they're sort of blaming you, they're putting it all on you and having the ability to like take that in, not take it personally, work with that energy, redirect it, bring everyone onto that same team so that you're working together to solve the problem rather than, you know, either rejecting them outright or taking it all onto yourself and trying to make it your own responsibility. Um, I mean, it's an incredibly important skill. That's, and that's like, I think one of the hardest layers of that skill. So I think that that's something I'm going to think about because I think that's a really interesting thing to keep track of, to keep looking at how well I am doing on those sorts of things. Yeah, honestly, John, I just want to follow up on what you said because I think one of the most important skills for a leader or a manager is to be able to stay centered or to recenter themselves when things pull them off balance like that. And I think that if you want to, you know, model that behavior and if you want to be able to connect with someone else, that if you're unbalanced, it'll, it'll lead to unbalanced outcomes. And that can be really hard, but it's, it's also super important. Definitely. The thing that really stood out to me was this contrast between open source culture and the culture that we have at our companies. And specifically, what ends up being missing is this currency of respect and, and gratitude. I mean, even something as simple as like writing good commit comments is one of the examples you used was, you know, when, when, when everyone is watching, when respect as a currency matters in terms of the glue that holds the organization together, we change, we act very differently in that context. But an organization can actually hold together under this totally different set of of glue principles. Yet in this corporate context where we've got this different kind of glue, some of these fundamental things such as having a currency of respect and gratitude among a social group of peers breaks down. I think that's really sad in a lot of ways of why is it hard to bring these really beautiful things that we have in a community context inside our organizations. And, you know, I think about just humans and tribes and how we behave and how the things that we do as leaders are modeled and echoed throughout our organizations. 
that what if we started running our corporate organizations more like communities, more like treating people with respect and helping them to find the things that inspire them to, to do their jobs that they're having fun with so that they're aligned with those same kind of incentives that, you know, you'd have in a community social organization where people are free and not just there because of, you know, making decisions for this higher person in the tree. Excellent. The comment that kind of stood out to me in all of this uh, that I had never really thought about was the whole like leaving emotions behind in pull requests and and kind of at the door and it and it does hark back to the like building a business off of a community of respect and i i had never personally done the comparison of okay well why exactly is a pull request different in the open source world versus internally and part of that is it is the assumptions that we bring to the tables such as you know, oh, of course, this is all logical and this is this is all objective versus in open source. Like, I don't know these people. I've never met them before in my life. And if something needs to be communicated, we have to be very explicit with all of our communication. And a large portion of that is emotional communication. Is this here are my assumptions? These are my subjective thoughts and being able to call them out as such as being hugely valuable. And I, and I think that's probably something that. I'd like to reflect on a little bit more in terms of previously I thought, oh, what are open source practices I can bring back into my day job, my working before a company? And I think I've never thought of it in terms of what are the kind of assumptions that are in place today that maybe we would be better with if they weren't there. And how would we be in a better place if we can call those out or modify them or or do something with them? So I I'd like to think more about that. It's interesting how it always comes back to understanding the the nature of relationships between people and how and how they're all unique. <laughs> it's almost like we built a podcast on that notion. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, you're saying it's it's like it's something greater than the code? Is that is that what you're talking mm. about? I don't think there could be anything greater than the code. <laughs> Huge if true. <laughs> Well, this has been really great. Thanks for coming on, and thanks for coming last minute. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, you all are awesome. It's like I feel like I could do this for the next eight hours, but it's like uh, have this have this pesky work job. I have to, you know, pay bills. I told you, I told you we'd be friends. Yeah, this, yeah. <laughs> I and actually Jamie did. I can't believe I doubted. I friend. <laughs> I added you on Twitter while we were doing the show. Ah. That's the way I express friendship. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's it is important that people do express uh, express these relationships differently. Yeah, you're officially in the friendship circle now too, after completing your first episode. Awesome, thank you, thank you all very much. 